again to the book of Romans in chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're currently learning from uh, verse 15 uh, in particular, uh, though I do want us to read all of verses 12 through 17 again so that we keep the context in mind. Uh, We've come to this glorious doctrine of adoption. So Romans 8 beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So in verse 15, we see this contrast between the spirit of slavery that results in fear and the spirit of adoption that results in confidence before God. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption in that it is the Holy Spirit who brings us into adoption through faith. The Spirit brings us to faith in Jesus into our status as children of God It is the Spirit who then teaches us about this adoption in the Scriptures. It is the Spirit who gives us the faith to to really believe and to sink our roots into this truth that we are adopted. And perhaps greatest of all, it is the Spirit who causes us to know and to sense and to feel in our heart of hearts the love of God for us as His children. So we're asking, what is this adoption that the Spirit helps us to know, understand, believe, experience? When we are living in light of our adoption, there is no reason for fear. We, we become bold, confident, courageous people. There's a great security that comes to us when we understand this doctrine. So what is this adoption? Because we want to be courageous Christians, don't we? We want to be secure Christians. We want to be confident Christians in this world. So what is this adoption that we should sink our roots into? Well, this morning we gave a general overview of this doctrine with six points. First, we saw that adoption is an act of God's grace. Second, that it is possible only because of the cross. Third, that it is only through union with Christ. Fourth, that it is given to all who are justified by faith and none others. Fifth, that it is both forensic and familial or legal and relational. And then sixth, we saw that it is a Trinitarian work. Tonight, I want us to see the big picture of what God is doing in this world. Because you see, adoption is not some small part of what God is doing in this world. Your adoption, my adoption into God's family is not some sideshow in God's plan of of how to save His people and glorify His Son. No, adoption is at the very heart of God Adoption is at the very heart of what God has been doing and is doing in this world. 
I want us to see this big picture and in doing so I pray that the Spirit will show us even more reasons why our adoption is such an amazing thing. So this is now coming from Romans 8.15 back up to the aerial view of the Bible and saying where is this doctrine of adoption in the plan of God? And I want to give you five points tonight. Five points um, really stemming from Genesis to Revelation about adoption in the story of redemption. Five points. Here is our first point. Adam was originally a son of God. Adam was originally a son of God. When Adam was created and given life, he was created in the position of being a true child of God. And thus, just as children bear the image of their parents, Adam was created in the image of God and with God's holy character. Adam was not a divine being he was a created being he was not a son of God in the same way that Jesus is but Adam was a true son of God and if you need proof of this listen to Luke chapter 3 verse 38 in fact turn with me there let me show you something Luke chapter 3 and verse 38 because here what we have is uh, what is sometimes known as the legal genealogy of Jesus. Uh, that is the ge- genealogy of Jesus going all the way from Joseph uh, back to Adam. Look at verse 38. Uh, Luke 3 and verse 38. Here at the very end of the genealogy. We started with, un- unlike Matthew's genealogy, which starts with Adam and works down to Jesus, Luke's goes backwards. It starts with Jesus and goes back to Adam. So we've been going back, going back, going back in time. And at the very end of the genealogy, we read this, verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of who? God. And so we see Adam clearly, um, explicitly called a son of God. Now more evidence of this is seen when you look closely at Genesis 5, for example. Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3. Listen to these verses. Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, Adam, but that word man is the word Adam. When God created man, he blessed him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So you see a comparison being made between the fatherhood of God and the fatherhood of Adam. Both God and Adam had children in their own likeness, in their own image. Both God and Adam had children to whom they gave them their name. The idea here is that just as Seth bore the image and the name given to him by his father Adam, so Adam bore the image and wore the name given to him by God. So Adam was a son of God. Now think about this. This means that the relationship that Adam had with God in the beginning was not just a creator-creation relationship. The relationship that Adam had to God in the beginning was not just a potter-to-clay relationship. It was not just a master-to-servant relationship. When God spoke to Adam, 
When God gave to Adam the garden, when God offered every tree for him to eat of except one, he was speaking to Adam as a father to his son. And when Adam rebelled against God and ignored God's word and broke God's commandment, Adam was rebelling against his father. Adam was rebelling against the God who had created him, gave him his name, whose image he bore, the God who loved him. Excuse me. So number one, Adam was a son of God. Point number two, our sonship towards God was lost in the fall. Our sonship towards God was lost in the fall. You see, this is why we need to be adopted by God. We lost our original father-child relationship with him. Our original sonship was a conditional sonship. That is, we could choose to end the relationship. And we did. Through Adam's sin, we chose to end the father-child relationship with God. Now, yes, there is still a sense in which God is the father of all people. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about that. The the universal fatherhood of God. Aren't we all sons and daughters of God around the world? Well, listen to Paul preaching to the people of Athens at the Areopagus. These were not Christians that he was preaching to. These were lost folks. And he said this. He said, in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said. And then he quotes, for we are indeed his offspring. He then says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And so Paul points to this sense in which God is the father of all people. That is, he is the one that created all people. God is the one who gives people their form and their dignity. God is the one who gave us the name, mankind. And Paul uses this to show the Greeks how silly it was for them to be worshiping worshiping idols of stone or wood. If we are God's children, we are clearly not stone or wood. And if we bear the image of our God, well, what does that tell you about God? We are beings with spirits, God is a spiritual being. But while we do have that teaching in the Bible, the bulk of Scripture teaches that in almost every other way, God is no longer the father of mankind. He is father only in the sense of he is the creator. But we have lost God as the father of mankind. Based on our allegiances, based on our character, based on the way we live, Jesus said that our father is now the devil. John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. In the fall, we went from having God as our father to the devil as our father. Uh, The devil, of course, is an abusive father a father from whom we need to be rescued this is why i find it very unhelpful to speak of the universal fatherhood of god in the past decades liberal christians especially like to talk about how god is the father of all people but in every way that really matters he isn't the father of most people 
When we fell, we fell out of God's favor. We fell into his righteous wrath. We fell into God's condemnation. We lost our access to God. We lost our harmonious relationship with God. Legally and relationally, our relationship to God was lost. Unbelievers can still try and pray, but since their prayers are not rooted in faith, they have no assurance, no promise that God will hear them. In fact, the Bible teaches that the prayers of the lost are an abomination to him. Uh, Children bear something of the character of their parents, but wicked humanity is now characterized by the very opposite of holiness. God was once our father, but our sonship was lost, and all of the privilege of being sons and daughters of God was lost. And then something very wonderful happened in the Old Testament. We, for the first time, begin to see that God is a God who is willing to adopt. We see this especially with the nation of Israel. This is our third truth. Our adoption was promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. This is number three. Our adoption was promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So first let's look at the foreshadowing. So God is looking out at all of the sinful nations in the world and he chose to adopt one special people to be his own, his children. Uh, Listen to Paul speak about national Israel in Romans 9 verse 4. He says, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. In other words, when Paul thinks about Israel and all the other nations of the world and what makes Israel different from all the other nations of the world, this is the very first privilege he names. To Israel belongs the adoption. Why did God adopt Israel to be his children and not other nations? Well, it was not because they were better than other nations no he adopted them out of sheer grace it was nothing in them it was completely of his sovereign will Uh, in exodus 4 verse 22 god is telling moses what he is to say before pharaoh and god says then you shall say to pharaoh thus says the lord israel is my firstborn son in other words pharaoh when you mess with israel you are messing with god for he has adopted them. Old Testament Israel was called God's firstborn son to show just how highly God cared for them. That they were preeminent among all the peoples of the world in God's sight. But why Israel? Why not Assyria? Why not the Babylonians? Why not the Greeks or the Romans? Why not the Egyptians? Why did God choose Israel? Listen to God give the answer in Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 7. God says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Remember when God chose them, they were one, Abraham. That's it. That was the whole nation of Israel, one person. So it wasn't because they were a great mighty nation. He says, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Why did God choose to adopt Israel? Because he chose to adopt them. Why did God choose to place his special love on them? Because he chose to. The reason lies solely within the will of God. The reason of his adopting Israel lies solely within his own purposes, to glorify his holy name. And yet, what about all of those privileges that Israel had as God's children? Because they were adopted, they got to hear from God. As, pro- as, as he raised up prophets in their midst and he spoke to them. The people of Israel actually heard the voice of God audibly at Mount Sinai. Uh, they received God's special revelation. His commandments were given to them because he loved them. And as a father teaches his children the right ways to live, so God gave them the law, but he gave them more than that. He gave them his own special presence when they were being persecuted by others, when they were being picked on by other nations, it was he who would deliver them and protect them. As their father, God provided for them. He protected for them. He led Israel. He brought them into a great inheritance, the promised lands. And there he dwelt with them in his holy of holy places, in the temple, in this land flowing with milk and honey. The adoption of Israel was a wonderful thing that made them honestly more blessed than any other nation on earth. And yet as great as God's adoption of Old Testament Israel was, it was only a shadow of God's true adoption. It was only a picture of the real thing. It wasn't the real thing. It was a picture of the real thing. Why do I say that his adoption of them wasn't the real thing? Well, first of all, Israel, talking about Old Testament nation, Israel, their adoption was temporary. It was not permanent. Remember what God said to Israel through Hosea? At that point, he said to them, you are not my people and I am not your God. In the book of Jeremiah, God is going to use the illustration of marriage. And there's a point where he says, I'm coming to Israel with a certificate of divorce. The covenant that God made with national Israel was that they must be a people who obeyed his commandments. They failed to do so, and the relationship was over. Over and over again, the Old Testament speaks of Israel's turning away from God in terms of a child turning away from his father. Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 6, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished they are a crooked and twisted generation do you thus repay the Lord you foolish and senseless people is he not your father who created you who made you who established you the passage goes on beginning of verse 18 you were unmindful of the rock that bore you you have forgotten the God who gave you birth the Lord saw it and he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters and he said I will hide my face from them I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is not faithfulness. Now, that was in Deuteronomy, but it was God speaking through Moses about a day many centuries to come when Israel would live in rebellion and God would turn away from them. 
And there are many other passages like these. They show that part of what made Israel's constant rebellion against God so evil was that he was their father. And they were acting like rebellious, hateful children towards their father. So Israel's adoption was only a shadow because it was temporary. The relationship did not last. But that's not all. Israel's adoption was a shadow because it didn't really grant access to God. Yes, God was with his people, but how was he with them? He was with them in the Holy of Holies in a room that nobody could enter except for one man and him only one time a year and he had to be very careful when he went or he would find himself dead. Uh, The Israelites were not allowed to go in. They could not approach the mercy seat. They could not come before the throne of God. And then on top of this, the inheritance, the, the, the father that God gave to these adopted children. It was a temporary inheritance. They lost the promised land due to their sinfulness, through the attacks of Assyria and the Babylon. Uh, eventually, Israel was allowed back, but in 70 AD, Jerusalem was laid waste. The second temple utterly destroyed, and Israel was an Old Testament nation ceased to exist. God's relationship with Old Testament Israel was meant to be a visible, physical picture of what he was going to do on a much grander scale with his true people, his true Israel, with all who believe on Christ. You see, the Old Testament spoke of a day when God would have a people for himself who truly bore his image, people who would obey his commandments from their hearts, people who would actually reflect something of the Father's character in their lives. This is the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31. The Old Testament speaks of an inheritance that is not temporary, that is not fleeting, an inheritance that will be eternal. Abraham dwelt in the same Canaan that his descendants were later to be given by God, but he knew that what he was being truly promised was a better country, a better kingdom, something heavenly and not earthly. In the Jeremiah 31 passage, we read this. Listen to this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Notice that God said there that his people would not have to tell each other to know him for they would all know him from the greatest to the least. And this word know is not referring mainly to intellectual knowledge. God is speaking about a day when there would be a people who would know him in a relationship way. Father to children. Adam had once known what it was to walk and talk with God in the garden. And now God is speaking of a day when all his people would know him in that relational way. No more veil keeping people out of God's presence. The veil would be torn in two. True adoption would come about. God's children would be welcomed into the throne room of their father. Now don't get the idea. Well, we'll get there in a second. Point number four. Point number four. It is the church. 
that has been truly adopted as the children of God. So Adam, in the beginning, was a son of God, okay? And he represented all humanity. We lost that in the fall. But a picture of the kind of adoption that was coming, that God would offer to his people, that was foreshadowed in national Israel. And now it has come about in the church where God is adopting people. Already in the Old Testament, it had begun. There was a remnant Already in the Old Testament, there were some who knew what it was to have the Spirit dwell in their souls with faith in their hearts. These were people who believed in the gospel of the coming Messiah, and they knew what it was to truly commune with God through prayer. But now in the New Testament, all of God's people can be described this way. It is the church, the true church, all who truly believe on Christ who have been adopted. We see this especially in Galatians 4. Uh, Paul had been speaking in Galatians 3 about how Abraham was promised this great inheritance. But Paul says that that inheritance could not be gained by law keeping. That is because of man's sin, we will never be good enough to be faithful children of God worthy of receiving his inheritance. The nation of Israel showed time and time again that man is too sinful to be good enough to earn God's favor and so in Galatians 4 Paul turns to Christ and the church and he says this in Galatians 4 verse 4 he says when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons in other words we never could have been adopted without a redeemer we never could be God's children unless someone came and met the requirements for us Jesus came and did all that he did for this purpose that we would receive adoption the we there is the church all who believe on Jesus Christ Mount Hermon Jesus has come as the true son of God and he has been an obedient son obedient even to death. And through him, the second Adam, we are again made sons and daughters of God. Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He became like us so that he could do what was necessary to make us like him, children of God. He became flesh and blood like us that we might become his brothers and sisters. Friends, our adoption is so much better than what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Our adoption is permanent. We will never lose it. God will forever be our father. There will never be a day when we will cease to be his children. We don't have to worry about our sins ruining the relationship. We are counted righteous in Christ Jesus is our righteousness before God. Our adoption is secure. It is everlasting. Not only that, but through the Holy Spirit, the image of our Father really is being developed inside of us. We are becoming more and more like our Father, bearing the characteristics and the traits of His perfect character. The inheritance that we are being given is not just a plot of land in the Middle East 
we are going to be given the new heavens and the new earth and they will never be taken from us and there will never be enemies invading us and there will never be famine or drought or disease. It will be a land where there is no sorrow, no sickness, no pain, no death. And then above all of that, our adoption is better than that of national Israel because we have true and free access to God. We are called to approach to approach the throne of grace with confidence. They could only come to the mercy seat one time a year and then it was only one man who had been born into one special family and even he had to be careful. But all of us, no matter what our background, are now welcomed before the mercy seat to bring our cares and our petitions The Spirit teaches us of our adoption and when we get this doctrine of adoption, the Spirit causes us to come to our Father crying, Abba, Father. And we'll learn about what that all means next week. But that isn't the end of the story. Uh, Look back with me at Romans 8 and I want you to look down at verse 23. Uh, Romans 8 verse 23 and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Did you notice? Verse 15, adoption is in the present tense. We who are in Christ are adopted. Verse 16, we are children of God. But in verse 23, there is a very real sense in which our adoption is not yet completed. Sometimes a family can adopt a child and even have that child in their home and yet there is still some things to be done before the adoption is truly and fully finalized. In our case, what is left to be done is for us to be made perfect like our Father, for our bodies and souls to be fully glorified, And then on that day when we shine like the sun with the glory of our Father and we are welcomed by Him into our heavenly home, that will be the day when our adoption will be finally and fully complete. So if you think about what we've seen today, you'll notice that there is a past, present, and future aspect to our adoption. In the past, we saw this morning, we were predestined to adoption. And this took place before the foundations of the world. Christian, you were chosen by grace before anything was ever made. You were chosen to be adopted by God. And why you? Well, just like national Israel, there was nothing in you that made you better than anyone else, that made you more attractive to God. You didn't even exist yet when he chose you. But God chose to set his love on you. And he has chosen to adopt you since eternity passed. Now in the present, you have actually been adopted. You have the privileges and the blessings of being adopted, some of which we've talked about tonight. You have fellowship with God. You have his character being born within you. You are counted as one of his family. And yet, there is much more concerning your adoption that is still to come. You have not yet set foot on the promised land. That is, at least this earth underneath our feet right now is still very much the old earth. Would you agree? <laughs> it's, it's not been made new yet. We have not yet entered fully 
into the presence of our Father the way we will enter into His presence on the last day. His character has not yet been fully perfected in us. And so while it is true that we were chosen for adoption and we now have been adopted, there is a sense in which we still wait eagerly with creation for our adoption as sons. We are waiting for our adoption to be finalized and perfected. So here's the big picture of adoption in the plan of God. What sonship we had at the beginning was lost But through Israel, we saw that God is an adopting God, willing to graciously adopt sinful people as his children. The Old Testament adoption of national Israel was a shadow, a picture. Through Christ, we have been given the real thing. God is our Father. We are his sons and daughters forever. This is the big picture. And adoption is at the very heart of it. So let us rejoice in what God has done for us And let us rejoice in the future that is ours through Christ. Amen? Amen. Um, 